0: else? Just love Thanksgiving. Is that your favorite holiday? I, Thanksgiving's my jam. I know, it's not, it's not hugely popular, but man, I tell you, if it were up to me, I would decorate in cornucopias like all year long. I just, I love Thanksgiving. I love, I love the fall, which we don't experience here, but we've heard about it, right? You, you've seen pictures of fall, right? There's these things um, on trees called leaves, you know them. They're, they're not always green everywhere. I know it, it's weird. I know, it's like, wait, what? There are places where leaves aren't always green. Yeah, at times they change colors. And there are places, uh, even in America, where it's just gorgeous, like yellows and oranges. and I just love it. I love it. And I love Thanksgiving, just the, the holiday itself. Who, who looks forward to Thanksgiving? Okay, but who basically skips over Thanksgiving and decorates for Christmas before? <laughs> yes, yeah, totally. So, so I mean, just, I'm just gonna just be real. I live in a house divided. Yeah, it's true. So I'm all about Thanksgiving. My wife decorates for Christmas, November 1st, which is actually like, that's hard for her to wait that long, right? that's, that's, That's me. That's my influence on her that we wait till November 1st. But she is kind that on Thanksgiving Day, in one room of the house, she will take Thanksgiving like decorations and cover over the Christmas decorations. So at least during dinner, we have some sort of like Thanksgiving fall esque going on, which, which I love and I really appreciate it. I think though what I've discovered is what I love about things well, many things, but one thing I really love is Thanksgiving is like the lazy man's holiday. You know, it's just, it's all about... Eat lots of food that are yellow and carbohydrates, right? Just a lot of them, you know, mashed potatoes and corn and stuffing and turkey. It's all the same color, right? It's all carbohydrates. So it's all healthy, right? And just eat just so much that you feel sick afterwards. And then the next day, just shop till you drop. And then Saturday, watch football all day long or Netflix, whatever it is that you do. And then feel worse than you did before you started the week. Like, isn't that, isn't it great? Don't you love it? You know, I, 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 I thought I learned my lesson this year. So we, like, like, I mean, true Americans, we don't have one Thanksgiving dinner. We have two. That's, I mean, that is like the most American thing ever, right? I mean, I don't know why we don't sing, sing about that, like about eating two Thanksgiving dinners because that is the most American. That should be a country song. Uh, I've reserved the right to get uh, royalties for that, just if anyone comes up with one. So we have two Thanksgiving dinners. So the first one on, on Wednesday night, we, we did WDW Turkey Eve. I do not even know we have another campus, the Disney campus. And so they do this event called Turkey Eve. And so we went and we did Turkey Eve. And I knew going in, I was like, I've got another Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow. So I've got to pace myself. So I went through the buffet and I may have filled a third of my plate. For real, I mean, that took some serious self-control because you know what's on the buffet, right? Sweet potato casserole, that is on there. And to only fill your plate up a third full, it's it's tough. So I did. And I felt so good about myself walking from the buffet to my table. I thought, man, I did a great job. And then when I only ate that and I didn't get seconds, when I left and went home, I felt great. I thought, this is amazing. When you don't overeat, you feel good. Like you you, you don't feel heavy and gross. And I don't know what that chemical is in the turkey that makes you feel tired. I didn't feel that. It was fantastic. It was such a revelation that the next day when I actually had the real Thanksgiving dinner, I overate so much that I wanted to throw away all the leftovers. And Thanksgiving leftovers are like the thing. Like they're the greatest leftovers ever. And I was, I was so, I ate so much food. That I was just, oh, this is the worst. But isn't that kind of the way that we function oftentimes? I don't know, I was thinking about like that, that's totally our society. Because what we say is you need to, you need to live a life that is all about comfort. It's all about laziness. It's all about indulging. It's all about binging. It's all about just gorging yourself in whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that you desire, whatever it is you need right now. And yet when we do that, we just feel worse. Have you ever, I mean, I know you've never like just binged an entire season of a Netflix show, but if you have, have you ever done that? And then you got up afterwards and you're like, I feel great. I feel lighter. I feel, I feel so good about myself and who I am. Like, you know, I just look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I'm just as good looking as all those good looking people on the television. Like, I just feel great about myself. It's like when you just, you eat too much, you just kind of like, oh, I feel so amazing. No, you just feel worse. Because I think there's something at the core of the way that God created us is we were not created to simply receive. We were not created to simply consume. We were not created to simply indulge and binge. What if we were also created to not just receive, but to give, to pour out, to be useful in something that is greater than just ourselves? Why don't you grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, if you got one of those 1 Timothy uh, journal devotional things, You are going to be loving life today because we're going to be all about those today. Um, There's many different disciplines of the faith. And these are just ways that we walk in the footsteps of Jesus and um, cultivate a deeper intimacy with him. And one of those disciplines is the discipline of study. And the way that you can study, one way you can study is through utilizing an inductive Bible study method. Who's all about the inductive Bible study method? Some of you are, right? You got your colored pins. you got your highlighters, you know, all the shapes. Well, we're gonna do some of that today. And, and, and I just want you to just realize, like, it's okay to write in your Bible. It, it is, it's okay to write in your Bible. It's totally fine. So if you have a Bible or a journal and a pen, you can utilize them both today. So what we're gonna do is I, I've got some slides and they look just like the journal or very similar to the journal. And I just kind of showed you basically my Bible study journal um, entries, and then we're just going to talk through it. So let's start. Let's just read the passage. It is uh, 1 Timothy four eleven through 16. It says this. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Bless you. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the elders, the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, let me tell you, this passage is thick there's some incredible things here. In fact, there's one thing here that I am so thankful it's in here and we're gonna to get to it. But what I wanna do is I wanna I want look at this in a, in a study perspective. So let's look at this first verse, command and teach these things. So what I've done uh, is I've circled command and teach and underlined those things. Now, You don't have to do what I did. You can circle different things. You can put squares around things. You can highlight things. You can underline other things. That's okay. But I want to show you what I did. So maybe it can help give you some perspective on what you can kind of do, right? Because you can mark words that sound important. You can mark words that sound like commands. Uh, You can circle and underline and highlight things that you want to remember. You can draw lines between things that are connected. You can begin to use your detective mind to jump into the passage of scripture and say, God, what are you saying here in this space? And we can do it all together. So Paul begins by telling Timothy, command and teach. And really these things are closely related. It's like he's saying, teach with authority. These things. And because these things kind of sound ambiguous, I wanted to go back through uh, the book and say, what were these things? What were the things that Paul commanded Timothy to teach? So So I just listed a number of them over here on the right. The aim of our charge is what? Love. The aim or the telos, it's the Greek word, the end for which we were created, the end for which the church was established is love. Paul says, Timothy, teach these things. Command and teach, teach with authority that the aim of our charge is love. He says these false teachers are using the law unlawfully so in turn we should use the bible biblically the way the bible has taught us to utilize it engage with it we should do that the gospels for the worst of the worst paul said I'm the worst of the worst and the gospels for me and that gives god glory he said we christians we followers of jesus should love everyone even our enemies to such a degree that we just we pray not just about them, but we pray for them and we thank God for them. When, those, when, when there are people who are uneducated and they're trying to teach with authority, we should stop them from doing that because if you're not educated, you should not teach with authority. So he said to Timothy, educate the people who are uneducated and then release them to use the gifts and talents that God gave them in the way that he designed the church to function. And then he begins to talk about leaders. And he says, He says, character matters. If you remember when we looked at elders and deacons and you looked at all the qualifications of the elders and the deacons, what you have over and over and over is character, 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 character. Almost everything Paul says to Timothy about who should be an elder, who should be a deacon, is about their character. Character matters, which is super important in our world, in our day and age, when we say talent, 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 right? 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 If someone has, is super talented, but their character is kind of wonky, we're like, ah, that's fine. We'll give you a pass because you're talented. Because we like the way that you teach, or we like the way that you do X, Y, or Z. But Paul says, no, character, character, character is king. Timothy, make sure these people are of high moral character. And then he says also, make sure that the church structure, the leadership structure matches the upside down nature of the kingdom of heaven right? That leaders are meant to serve. They're meant to come under and lift up, to care for people, to serve people. That's what leadership is in the community of faith. He says, marriage and food, those things are good gifts from God. So you don't have to teach that you should always abstain from marriage and always abstain from food. There may be a time or a season where you abstain from something, but marriage is a good gift from God. Just like singleness is a good gift from God. Food is a good gift from God. Don't teach people to abstain from those things for long. Uh, Our hope is in Jesus. Prioritize godliness. These are the things or many of the things that Paul lined out in the letter to teach. And you you can imagine him thinking about Timothy as Timothy is going into this very difficult scenario in the church of Ephesus, which is a hugely important church in that area. And there's all these false teachers that are teaching. So Paul goes on to say this, Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. But set an example for the believers in speech and conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. He says, don't let anyone despise you for your youth. In that culture, in that time frame, in that, uh, that reality that Timothy lived in, especially in Ephesus, age was the thing that mattered. Right, The older you are, the more highly valued you were in that society. In fact, in Ephesus, uh, there was a group of people that led the city and they were called the elders. Uh, this is not the, the elders of, of churches, but it kind of mirrors that. But it was just a group of older men and they ran the city. And so Timothy is coming in as a 30-year-old, 30, 30 some odd years old. And Paul says, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, right? He's saying that, Age is not the measure of what you should look to for authority. That maturity is. Now, in our culture, it's the exact opposite, right? We despise people just because they're old. We say like, oh, you're old, you don't understand. We need innovation. We need something new. We need something different. We need something that's never been done before. And we just discount experience. We discount expertise. We discount age. But what Paul is saying is the important thing is your maturity. And I love that he continues this sentence. They didn't leave it there. Don't let anyone despise you for your youth because you could take this in the wrong way. Have you ever been in a scenario where you had a teacher, a coach or a boss or a parent that was insecure about their position of power? They were insecure about, I don't know, their talent or their gifting or their knowledge or their wisdom or their position. And so they lorded their power over in this way that was just the worst. And you're like, that is not the way that you don't let someone look down upon you. Paul says the way that you do that is you actually set an example, a whole life example that your life matches your teaching. Live a life that mirrors Jesus. Set an example for people to see in your your speech, in the things that you say, in your conduct, in the way that you interact with people, in your love. Because the aim of our charge is love. And if you're going to teach people that the aim of our charge is love, you need to be the example of what that is supposed to look like, of giving yourself sacrificially for the good of the other. Set an example in faith. This Greek word pistis can mean trust or also faithfulness. And I think it's kind of a holistic picture, right? In your faithfulness to Jesus, in your trust in Jesus, and set an example in your purity. This, pure, this word purity, the idea comes from the Hebrew scriptures. And it's about things that are devoted to Yahweh, to God. Things that were devoted to God or people that were devoted to God were called to be pure. And Paul says, I want you to be an example of purity. The example of someone who's completely and utterly devoted to his or her God. Be devoted to Jesus. Demonstrate someone who is utterly sold out, devoted to Jesus. Don't just teach authoritatively, set an example. And in your example, people will look at your life, they will see your maturity and they will listen to what you have to say. When someone lives out their message, it is so much more compelling, isn't it? Right? When Renault tells us to go adopt, it's like, well, okay, you're doing it. I get that. That makes sense, right? When someone is living out their challenging message, it makes sense. And Paul says, Timothy, don't just teach. Don't just command, but live a life that mirrors Christ likeness holistically in everything that you do. In verse 13, he says, until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This word devote, is a powerful word, isn't it? To be completely and utterly devoted to something. You see this in the book of Acts, how the community of faith was devoted to the community. They were devoted in Acts chapter 1 to prayer as a community. In Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to uh, praying as a community, to teaching, to listening to the apostles' teaching, to um, the fellowship together, to communion together, to breaking bread together. You get this picture of this life of being invited into the family of God. It's actually a family, it's actually a community that we're not saved into isolation, but we're saved into a family and we're called to devote ourselves to this family. So even in the things Timothy is supposed to do in this community of faith, which Paul is telling him to do to exercise his gifts, public reading of scripture, exhortation and teaching, these are all community things, right? When you're reading Scripture publicly, how many people are involved? A bunch of people, right? When you're exhorting, you can't just exhort the mirror, right? You can't just can't exhort the couches that are there in an empty room. You're exhorting people, right? People are exhorting and others are being exhorted. When you're teaching, some people are teaching and some people are learning. right These are communal things that we were meant to live the Christian life together. We were meant to be devoted to Jesus together. We were meant to learn together, to study together, to pursue him together. And we were meant to be devoted to this. He says in verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, as I was taking notes, I did a little circle with a line through it because that means no. And it was just a great visual reminder of this is something Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't neglect the gift that you've been given. Now, something about a gift, we need, we need to cover this, it's hugely important. A gift is something you earn, right? No, no, a gift is not something you earn, it's just something you're given even though you haven't earned it, right? That's what a gift is. Now, I wanna look at 1 Corinthians 12. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to turn there. I'm just going to read from 1 Corinthians 12 about these gifts that Paul is talking about. And he says this. He says, Now, there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who to each, each one individually as he wills. So these gifts, Paul is talking about, who gives these gifts? God gives these gifts. And according to whose will? My will? Whose will? God's will, according to God's will. And who empowers these gifts once they're already given? God. Okay. So they're gifts given by God, according to God's will, empowered by God, even after they're given. Now, What are they for? Paul says, these are given to each one for the common good. Now, this is huge. This is so important. I love this. This is great. The way that God has set this up is incredible. God has given me a gift. And this gift is no good to me. It's only good to you. And you have a gift and it's no good to you, but it's good for us, right? Right? So all of us have been given a gift, but if I just try to use it for my glory in isolation, it does me no good. It's only good and useful, beneficial and beautiful when I use it in the community of faith. And you have a gift. Every follower of Jesus has been given a gift to be useful for the common good. Like our common good misses out when you don't use your gift. When you don't use your gift, when you neglect your gift, as Paul says, don't do, when you neglect it, we miss out. The community misses out. Every follower of Jesus has been given a gift and we are called to utilize it to build up God's church and to expand God's kingdom. How incredible that God gives us gifts. Now, with that in mind, Paul says this, do not neglect the gift that you've been given which was given to you by prophecy. Now, what is prophecy? This word prophecy means interpretation of the divine will. Or you see it used throughout the Old Testament, speaking on behalf of God. So this gift that was given to Timothy was given by prophecy. So someone was prophesying over Timothy. So if someone is prophesying, whose will are they interpreting? Who are they speaking for? God. So it's not some person speaking in their own authority according to their own will what they want to happen, right? It's someone speaking for God, interpreting God's will. So Timothy got this gift as someone prophesied over him as the elders. So in community, in plurality, these leaders were laying hands on him. Now, that's not the only way that God gives gifts to his children. Every follower of Jesus has one, but this is how it worked in Timothy's case. But it's so important to remember, these are gifts given by whom? According to whose will? And who are they empowered by once they've they've been given? God, right? This message is brought to you by God, right? Because as I'm using the gift that God has given me according to his will, he is the one empowering it right now. Anything good that happens through my mouth, that is from God. It is a gift from God to us as the church. Given to you by God for God's glory, empowered by God. Then he says this, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. This is the space. This is the word. I am so thankful that the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write this sentence. He says to Timothy, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all will see your perfection. Wait, what? That's not what it says? Paul doesn't call Timothy to make people see his perfection? What does he call Timothy to allow people to see? It's progress. And what is progress but imperfect, right? It's an imperfect person moving towards maturity, right? Paul doesn't say, Timothy, demonstrate perfection to the church, demonstrate perfection to the elders, demonstrate perfection to the false teachers, No, he says, I want you to do these things faithfully so that they see that there's a person, a man of God who is continually looking more like Jesus. Who here loves participles? I love participles, right? That I-N-G is incredible, isn't it? That I-N-G changes everything. It's not someone who has already arrived. It's not someone who has already obtained it. It's someone who God is continually working through. And I tell you, this is such good news for me because I feel like a failure so often. You ever feel like a failure? You're like, are you kidding me? You wake up in the morning, you're like, really? How in the world, I, I just woke up and I'm already thinking thoughts that are not godly. Like you you just, it's just like, what? How in the world do I continue to sin over and over? How in the world do I continue to rebel against? Us? Like, I, what? Can I see this progress and I think, yes, that's my word. My word is progress because I'm not where I was 10 years ago and I'm not where I'm gonna be in 10 years from now because God is taking me on a participle journey. He is moving me more and more into completion, more and more into maturity. He's making me more and more loving, more and more patient, more and more kind. And I'm not there yet. One day I will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Today is not that day. And that's good. That's good. Paul commanded Timothy to demonstrate his progress man, that takes a weight off. I am so thankful for that sentence, that word. And then he says this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Once again, Paul matches his gift of teaching with the example he's supposed to live. Keep a close watch because both matter. How many People have we seen in the Christian world that have been super gifted, incredibly talented, and yet their life didn't match the message they were giving and how many people have been hurt in that way. And it's not perfection, right? Because I'm imperfect. I love to introduce myself as an imperfect follower of Jesus. I want to set the bar low because that's where I'm at. <laughs> but still, Paul says, keep watch. You're not gonna do it perfectly, but keep a watch on it yourself and on your teaching. Now, when you look at this these, I don't know, four or five sentences, and you just read them back to back, they can be a little bit confusing because there are so many command words. So I just wanna show you all the command words that we have in this passage, okay? There's 10 of them. I circled them all so you can see them. And when you look at these, like command, teach, let no one despise you, set the believers as an example, devote yourself, do not neglect, practice, immerse, keep a close watch, persist. Like it can be a little bit daunting, a little bit overwhelming, but as you utilize your study tools, as you underline things and circle things and highlight things, you can begin to group things. Who loves to categorize things? Who loves a spreadsheet? Yeah, we love a good spreadsheet. We like to color code. We like to set things up and group things. That's good. That's good. So here's what I did. I grouped these things. They're really just two things. Paul is really telling Timothy to do two things. Command and teach, which are connected, and then set an example. This is what this passage is all about. Timothy, go command and teach. Go teach authoritatively and set an example. Teach and set an example. Live a life that is worthy of the gifting that I'm calling you to use. And then all these others match with it. And so I color-coded the rest of the passage you can see, right? Command and teach. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation to teaching. That's with teach, right? Do not neglect the gift that you have. That's teaching, right? Keep a close watch on your teaching. And then you've got set the believers an example, right? Don't let anyone despise you by setting an example, by practicing, by immersing yourself, by keeping a close watch on yourself. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. You have been given a gift by God according to God's will for God's glory empowered by God and you're called to allow God or to participate with God in his bringing you into maturity. And although I'm not Timothy and you're not Timothy and we're not called to go to Ephesus and correct this church full of false teachers, all of us have a gift. Given by God for the building up of his church and the expansion of his kingdom, and all of us are on a journey into maturity. We, these two things matter for us. And then Paul does this brilliant thing. He gives us the reason why. Why should we use the gifts and talents we've been given, and why should we continue to work at by the power of God's Spirit, participating with him in our process? Of coming to maturity. He says this. Uh, he says, so that, two things, so that all may see your progress, and then by seeing their progress, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, who else reads that and gets a little bit uncomfortable? Why is that? Because God says, Whose work is saving work? Jesus or God? I would have accepted both answers. Both, are, both would, would work. Who does saving work? What? God. Let's say it again. Who does saving work? God. God does saving work, right? Who sent their own son to save the world? God. Who died on a cross? Who rose to new life? Conquered sin and death. Jesus, saving work is whose work? God's work, Jesus' work. God is the one who saves. And yet Paul tells Timothy, by using your gift and making sure you're setting example, you participate in divine work. Work you have no business doing. Did you hear that? Work that is God's work that God does, God alone does, that God alone paid for, that Jesus alone paid for on the cross. He says you, by using your gift and moving into maturity, you can participate in divine eternal work. You can participate in your saving by, and the scriptures talk about salvation in three tenses, past salvation, present salvation, and future salvation. Past is what we would call justification, what Jesus did on the cross, paying the penalty for us and making us right with God. Present salvation, sanctification, or movement into maturity, that's where we participate in our salvation. That we, as Paul says, to um, the church of Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is at work within you, right? So God is moving you into maturity and he's invited you to participate with him in that work, that divine work. And we participate in other people's salvation in that we can preach the word, we can live an example to non-believers, we can invite them to church, we can invite them into our family, we can share the gospel and we can walk with someone into maturity. That we can participate in other people's salvation. Now, this is incredible because we have no business doing this. We don't have any power to be able to save anyone. Our wisdom is contingent upon God. Like, like this is God's work. And yet he says to us, to you and to me, we can participate in divine work, work that won't just last here, but into eternity as we use the gift that God has given us by his will, empowered by him. And as we continue to allow the spirit to move us into maturity. Can you believe that? You Today, can participate in divine work. Isn't that incredible? Why would God allow us to do that? I mean, a room full of screw ups. You know what I mean? Like, why? And yet, He does. How incredible is our God? And then, Paul, knowing how important this was, he gives Timothy a bunch of command words that are repeats. So what we have here, he says, command and teach, and set an example. And then he's got all of these things that are just basically repeat. Devote yourself. Do not neglect. Practice. Immerse yourself. Keep a close watch. Persist in. It's almost as if Paul knows that he's sending Timothy into a very difficult scenario. That the teachers are not going to listen to him. He's going to have to say the same things over and over and over and over again. He's going to have to inspire and re-inspire and re-inspire. He's going to have to correct and re-correct and re-correct. He's just going to have to continue because we human beings are slow learners, aren't we? Because we continue to eat too much food at Thanksgiving year in, year out, even though it makes us feel bad every time, right? We are slow learners and yet... Paul calls us, God calls us through Paul to participate. And so he says, Timothy, hey, it's going to be hard, but it's not just going to be hard to use the gift that you've been given to teach authoritatively. It's also going to be hard to continue into maturity. Because Paul knows that there's an enemy who is tenacious and that our flesh is persistent and that those old habits and those old patterns, they hang on and it's so hard. So he says, work at it, practice it, devote yourself, immerse yourself, keep a watch on, persist in this, Timothy. It is gonna be hard work. It is a long, difficult, arduous journey of following Jesus towards the cross. And when I think about that, I think about Rocky. Think about Rocky. I was a huge Rocky fan growing up. And and you know, it's debatable, but it's not. But Rocky Force hands down the best Rocky. It is. When he was fighting Ivan Drago, I mean, that was everything. Now, here's what I love about the Rocky movies is that every movie, there is a sequence, a four minute sequence where Rocky is doing like the most crazy workout ever. And it's set to this super inspirational music. And in Rocky Four, he's somewhere in Russia, like Siberia. I don't know where, but it's so snowy. It's so cold. And he's outside. He's racing a car. He's taking a big log and he's lifting over his head. And he's doing chin-ups on this like wooden beam. And he's doing push-ups and sit-ups. And he's running up this Siberian mountain in like two feet of snow. And he gets to the top and just is like, you know, Yo, Adrian. You know, he's just super excited. And I'm super excited. I'm all about it. And what I found is, you know what I love? I love hard work when it's in four-minute segments on the television being done by somebody else. I mean, I'm such a big fan of that kind of hard work, right? But when it comes to me getting up every day and being faced with the difficult journey of using the gift God has given me and persisting in it and... Walking into maturity, it's very difficult. When you wake up every day, the alarm goes off. and You're like, oh man, I'm so tired because I was up late last night doing all the things that I was supposed to be doing. And you wake up and your enemies come at you, your kids, right? And they're just there every morning. And you're like, how are they there every morning? But they are without an alarm. And then your spouse is there and you look at your spouse and you're like, oh man. How are they still married to me? Because I'm the worst. That's probably for Jennifer. She probably thinks, oh man, I don't think, man, I'm super lucky. But Jennifer and everyone else, it's like, oh, my boss and my coworkers. And it's just hard. And it gets exhausting. And you think, am I going to continue to do this? And so Paul says, hey, you've got to devote. You've got to persist. You've got to practice. You've got to immerse. You've got to, you've got, you've got to. And here's the good news. This is the good news. The good news came as I was watching YouTube. It did, it did. As I was working really hard, uh, I was watching YouTube, uh, breaking up a little sweat, and and I was watching this, this video uh, from this creator called How It Should Have Ended. And what this guy does is he makes animations of movies in five-minute segments but he goes through all like the problems of the movie and he like fixes them and says, this is actually how the movie should have ended. And the first one I ever saw was Lord of the Rings. Who's a Lord of the Rings fan? Who went to one of the midnight showings of Lord of the Rings and you were dressed up? Come on, I know, yes, thank you. Right now, this was this a was thing that used to happen. This, there was a thing when a movie would come out on a certain day and it wouldn't actually come out until that day. It's, it's weird, like like now a movie that comes out on Friday comes out on Wednesday afternoon. It's the strangest thing ever. But there was a time when if a movie, movie was gonna come out on Friday, it would come out at 12.01 on Friday. And there's, there was a group of people, I mean, masses of people would dress up as little hobbits and as elven people and dwarves and wizards, oh my. And they would all come together for the midnight showing and they would watch Lord of the Rings, right? They were so passionate about this story that had captivated their hearts and their minds. Now, how it should have ended I don't know if you know much about Lord of the Rings, but basically um, evil has taken over the world. And the way they're gonna stop it is there's this ring that they have to drop into a volcano. Okay, that's basically the premise of Lord of the Rings. And so there's all of these races of people, right? The elves and the dwarves and the wizards and the, the, the humans and the hobbits. They're all together trying to figure out how are we gonna get this ring and destroy it? How are we gonna do this? And in the, in the real movie, what they do, or in the books, if you read the books, They go on this long, like two, three, four-month journey, like through all of this difficult stuff. I mean, they're climbing up mountains and they're going through these wastelands and they're going right through Mordor. This just just this heart of evilness. And they're like, it's so difficult and hard. And so in the how it should have ended, they're gathered around and someone says, I've got an idea. And then it says 10 minutes later, and it shows them flying on these eagles and they fly over Mount Doom and they drop the ring in and it, and it gets destroyed and everything you know, is, is set right. And, and they're flying away and someone was like, man, that was so easy. Could you imagine if we had walked the whole way? How hard that would have been? Another guy was like, yeah, that would have taken months. And I was like, yeah, one of us might've died. And if you know the movie, Boromir dies, right? One of them does die. And it's really funny and and you'll laugh about that. Now there are reasons in the books why they couldn't have done that, but still it's funny. But let me tell you this, no one would dress up and get up and stay up till midnight to watch that. Because there's something about the way God created us. It was to work. Before the fall, work existed. God created us to get our hands dirty. God created us to work hard. God created us to practice, to persist, to devote. There's something when we read these stories, when we watch these movies, when we hear people's lives that are doing this, that are sold out for Jesus, that are living their life on mission, that are out in the world, that are doing the work of God, it compels us. We get excited about that. And when we do things like that, we feel good. Like there's something about it. Like when you get in a good workout or you have a good, healthy, deep conversation, right? You feel like, oh man, there's something in me that came alive. This is what I was created to do. So as Paul tells Timothy, it's gonna be a difficult journey. It's gonna be a long, arduous task. You're gonna to have to persist. You're gonna to have to practice. You're gonna to have to immerse. You're gonna to have to devote. You're gonna to have to continue and keep a watch. But it's good news because that's what you were created to do. That God wired us for more than TikTok Christianity. More than to just get a hit, a fix of whatever endorphin we want in the moment, right at the moment. Instead, to train and have patience and wait and be long-suffering and long-obedience in the same direction. It's not just that we're commanded to, it's we were wired to. We were created to. God has invited us, you and me, to participate in divine work. And it's good, hard, difficult, divine work. Patience isn't easy. Generosity isn't easy. Adoption isn't easy. Foster care isn't easy. Caring for widows is not easy. The way of Jesus is not easy. Volunteering in kids is not easy. Volunteering at the connection team is not easy. Volunteering on the worship team or the production team, it's not easy. Going out into the world and using your gifts and your talents to spread God's kingdom is not easy, but it's good. It's good. It's what you were created to do. Every single one of us here today has the opportunity to participate in divine work today. Don't waste your Sunday. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much that you are so good, that you would look on us and love us, that you would be willing to give your life to save us, that you would give us your spirit that you would connect us to family and community and that you would give each of us a gift that is good and useful for building up your church and expanding your kingdom. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God, I pray that we would take to heart these things that Paul wrote to Timothy, that we we would not neglect the gift that we've been given, but we would use it for your glory. And I pray that we would participate with your spirit, empowering us into maturity so that we can do what we were created to do, to create with you, to partner with you, to journey with you, to participate in divine work. Help us, God. We need you. Thank you for being so good. We ask all of these things in the beautiful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.